to Macintosh and Mod, haven't seen what? The podcast where we make each other watch movies we should have already seen. I'm Diana. And I'm David. And today we watched The Fisher King. A former radio DJ, suicidally despondent because of a terrible mistake he made, finds redemption in helping a deranged homeless man who is an unwitting victim of that mistake. Yeah. Uh-oh. <laughs> I might be in a little trouble with this one. <laughs> um, I don't know that you're in trouble. It's just mostly... I didn't love this movie. I still kind of do, but with a huge caveat here. I don't know. I just think it takes a long time to get to its point. There you go. (laughs) Um, This movie's like two hours and change, and it feels longer. And this movie really could have been 130, 145. Because, like, they get to the action really quick about, like, the problem. Like, this guy's on top of the world. Then he's down in the dumps. Oh, no. I feel like my life is meaningless. Like we get to that relatively quickly and then we just hang around and that's where I'm super annoyed. Well, so honestly though, I think part of the problem I was, I was thinking about it again as we watched it because I saw this movie, I want to say around high school Mm -hmm. and this wasn't one of the important movies though. I was into like Terry Gilliam as a director. Mm -hmm. This was one of those movies that was like, Oh, this looks interesting. Maybe I'll just rent it. And it hit me like at the right romantic teenager moment, mm-hmm. which if you see this movie at the right moment in your life, you're going to fall head over heels for it. Yeah. Because it's a fairy tale. Okay. And yet it does not find itself to that point until I feel like about halfway through the movie. Mm-hmm. The movie to me didn't grab me again until we went back out to Central Park And at that point in the movie, it finally grabbed me again of like, okay, yes, now I'm back in that vibe that I was looking for again. Mm -hmm. That whole, you you have the action so quick to the plot point, Mm -hmm. and then him meeting Perry, and then all of a sudden you are mixed up in this real weird muddled story until it finally starts to make sense of what's going on. Yeah. And so... (laughs) I think the second act of this movie has a huge problem of not quite knowing where it wants to go until it finally gets there. And then it it really rolls downhill really well. Mm-hmm. But at that point, you know, like you like you talk about, you may have checked out. <laughs> yeah. It sits too long on things that don't make as much of a meaningful impact. And I think, you know, it's entirely possible that Terry Gilliam didn't have the same type of ability to rein in in the editing room or even on set Robin Williams. Fair. Because Robin Williams will take over a movie if you let him. Mm -hmm. And I feel like he does that a little bit here, especially in that second act. Now, once he once you hit the stride of the story and it really becomes like this whole fairy tale driving ending towards these two men figuring out the healing they need. Yeah. Then he reins Robin back in the way he needs to. But for a whole bunch of the movie, it's just Robin ad lib after Robin ad lib. Mm -hmm. And we talked about it's like when you let him do that, it can ruin a movie. You've got especially when it's a dramatic film. Yes. So I I still love it, but it's not as high in my in my like esteem as a movie as it used to be, if that makes sense. Like. I love the story and where they're going with it, but oh boy, it does not does not hold up as well as I thought it did. That's fair. I just it wandered so much that you kind of like the way like I feel like they wrap it up relatively well, and I feel like that's lost because of how much wandering they did. 
Yeah, I don't know. It's it if nothing else, it is an interesting movie and it is different especially for its time. Mhm. I mean, I don't I don't even think now people would make a movie like this unless you got, you know, some of the there there are some directors that we have right now who are willing to kind of push push the story into this direction mm-hmm. in a fun way, but it's messy. It's messy. Yeah. The budget for this film was $24 million. That's $52 million in today's money. And that is a lot of money for a movie like this. Oh, yeah. But to be fair, it's Terry Gilliam. That man doesn't do anything for like a small budget. He does not half-ass. No. Which sometimes would be like, maybe you, maybe you should cool it just a little, but whatever. It grossed $41,900,000. That's about $91 million. It did decent. It did fine. Okay. It was it was a successful film. We can say that. Okay. All right, let's talk about our writing. Because the writing does not match our director at all here. No, it really doesn't. Well, and it's going to be especially interesting when I give you the credits of the gentleman named Richard Legravenese. Hmm. Before this, he wrote Rude Awakening. Okay. After this, he wrote The Ref, A Little Princess, The Bridges of Madison County, The Mirror Has Two Faces, the Horse Whisperer, Beloved, P.S. I Love You, Water for Elephants, Beautiful Creatures, Behind the Candelabra, The Last Five Years, and The Comedian. And coming, he did the story for Disenchanted. Hmm. Okay. This is a rom-com slash deep romance writer. Hmm. What, what do we think of the writing of this movie? I like the idea of the story. Like, right. The, the idea is great. But it it wanders too much. We get into so much exposition that you don't need. And and that's not terribly interesting. Or the only thing that's interesting is what's clearly Robin Williams playing. Here's what I think is that if it's stuck to its basic story points with the characters, Mm -hmm. Jack trying to deal with his issues with commitment. Mm -hmm. Like after this terrible tragedy, he's found a woman who actually loves him. If Jack finally, you know, will be with Anne and actually accept, it's like, no, I actually love this woman. Mm-hmm. And on the flip side, Perry is able to overcome all of this horrible trauma to actually make a human connection again. Because mm-hmm. he's clearly in love with this woman. And those two love stories are the point. That's the point of the movie, right? Mm-hmm. It's two men overcoming their trauma and guilt to finally be able to fall in love. And if we had just stuck with that and let the fantastic elements come around that, it would be fine. But too often, the fantasy elements, and I don't necessarily think this is our writer's issue, because I don't, I, I get the vibe that that's not what happened here. Mm-hmm. If it's just stuck to those points, it would be a magnificent film, right? Yeah. Because the whole idea of the Red Knight and bringing in the medieval mythology makes a ton of sense, especially because... His character is a professor. Yes. Like they they tie it together really well, but mm-hmm. they again, the wandering is too much. And from the notes that I see here, that's not our writer's problem. No, I mean, it's it's just all that extra exposition that takes away from like the tying up nicely that yeah. is clearly in the story, which is fine. And I like that. And I, I don't have to have a story be nicely tied up, but it is enjoyable especially when you you have two people who have suffered such tragedy yeah that that's satisfying but it's but in this film it's not mm-hmm. yeah and i again because of the way the trivia cites here 
And because I know our director all too well, I I really feel that that's our director's problem. Mm-hmm. I think it's overdone. But I, I think the writing in and of itself is smart and fantastic. And again, if he overwrote it, then that's mm-hmm. that's just the issue, is that he overwrote some of the, the mythology and those elements into it, and that we should have pulled back and just said, like, it's, it's the love stories, man. Mm-hmm. <laughs> that's it. That's what we should focus on here. Yeah. The castle in New York that they see is the facade of the Squadron A Armory, now part of Hunter College at 94th and Madison Avenue. Hmm. And when Perry tells the story of the Fisher King, he claims he heard it from a lecture from a professor at Hunter, which is who Perry was before his delusions overtook him in the wake of his trauma. Hmm. So they it's one of those you really have to be listening to the monologue to make sense of it. But which which did go on too long. Yeah, that too. Well. That's also one where the director could have made it more interesting by us flashing back to Perry before he was Perry. Yeah. So that we could see that's where he learned it. So we're getting both like what was actually happening versus like what Perry is imagining in his mind. Well, also, even if we didn't do that, mm-hmm. because I could I could respect like the same Jonathan Dem thing of, well, we planned on flashing back to all the Clarice stuff, but her acting was so good. Why bother? Mm hmm. I just think the problem here is that there's been so much exposition already that another exposition scene doesn't have the impact that it should. Mm-hmm. Like if we hadn't spent all that time saying and not showing mm-hmm. with them and spending all this time of them talking and on and on about how he follows this girl and dealing with all these things that, you know, this moment where everything stops down in there in Central Park really makes a bigger impact. Mm-hmm. The girl that Jack says can help Perry to find the Holy Grail is Lydia Sinclair. One of the legends of the Grail is that it is buried under Rosslyn Chapel in Scotland, built by the Sinclair clan. Hmm. And that name recurs throughout the Grail myths. All right. So the Grevenese did a lot of like interesting detail peppering into this script. Yeah. Of like pulling in mythology and names that revolve around the Grail. And I think in a really smart way of like, if he had studied all of this, then it's all floating in his mind. It's just freeform without connection. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and while not mentioned in the film, Perry is short for Parsifal, the pure fool, Knight of the Grail. Mm-hmm. Perry brings redemption to Jack, just as Parsifal brought redemption to the Fisher King. And also Parsifal did battle with a red knight, an extension of his own mental state. Mm-hmm. Perry experiences a cosmic awakening after kissing Lydia, just like Parsifal did when he kissed Kundry in the Grail Myths. Hmm. So it's all very tied together. And that's that's really cool and beautiful. Again, I just wish it had been explained in a less clumsy way. Yeah. And in that clumsiness, let us talk about our director. Now, this is a man that I genuinely enjoy. Mm-hmm. His films, though, he is his own unique filmmaker. Mm-hmm. Before this, he did the artwork and was the sole American member of Monty Python's Flying Circus and went on to direct Monty Python and the Holy Grail, Jabberwocky, Time Bandits, The Meaning of Life, Brazil, and The Adventures of Baron Munchausen. After this, he directed Twelve Monkeys, Fear and Loathing in Las Vegas, The Brothers Grimm, Tidelands, The Imaginarium of Dr. Parnassus, The Zero Theorem, and The Man Who Killed Don Quixote. Mm -hmm. What do we think of Terry Gilliam's directing of this movie? I mean, I think it's the problem. Yep. There's something fantastical that he's striving for, which does not make sense. 
I don't think he thought it through, you know? Like, I could I could totally buy it when, like, we're seeing things through Perry's eyes. Totally. Go for the fantasy. Go for the surrealism. But that's not what is actually happening. So, like, there's got to be a difference. And it just kind of pops up in, like, weird places. And then, like, it, I could have been fine with it when um, Jack decides, okay, I'm going to dress up like Perry and go get this fucking grail. Like, a little bit of it there because Jack has decided to join Perry in this world to help him. But it just doesn't make any sense. It's really inconsistent for this story. He ha- he he didn't set up the rules of the world very well. At no, all. like it's like there are no rules, and that does not like I'm all for no rules, but that doesn't suit the story you're trying to tell. He just didn't make the rules. He didn't establish the rules of the world, and so then it's just all over the fucking place. <laughs> and here's the weird thing: I think he's the right guy to direct a movie like this. I don't think this be. is a situation where you got the wrong director. Mm-hmm. Because this is this is right in his wheelhouse, mm-hmm. but I don't think he put enough thought into it. Mm-hmm. Here's a choice note: Gilliam had three rules for filmmaking he tried to follow: never do anyone's script but your own, never work for a major studio, and never work in America. He broke all three rules to make this film. Mm-hmm. I think that's a problem. Yeah, I mean, this is a guy who has such a unique style and vision. That it's there's no it's totally understandable why he wants to write all of his own projects. Mm-hmm. I feel like if he had at least taken a pass at the script, it might have fit his vision better because at least then maybe he would have set those rules up, you know. Mm-hmm. And again, maybe it maybe it wouldn't have been the same movie, but at least it would feel consistent and more notable. Because it's funny to me that right after this, he makes Twelve Monkeys, and Twelve Monkeys is great. Oh, yeah. And deals with a lot of similar themes. Yeah. So you're just like, oh, man, what? I, I, I do think him trying to adapt somebody else's vision because he's got such a unique way of looking at making movies is just not a great idea unless he's at least involved in the script process. Mm-hmm. It's a shame. It's a shame because I don't think he does a terrible job, but I do think he does a really messy, clumsy job. I think that's fair. Uh, This is one of his few projects that does not feature a single member of the Monty Python group. Hmm. He tended to bring them in in different roles throughout throughout his time. Jack's character was based off of Howard Stern, and the studio asked Stern for tapes of his show. Howard instead wanted to be a consultant and get paid to be a consultant since it was going to be modeled after him. The studio refused to pay him, and so when they declined the position, Stern told them he would not provide his recordings. Good for him. This is like right at the height of Stern, too. Oh, sure. Like, I could definitely see that parallel. But like, yeah, if you're going to base the whole character off of me and like, you want my shit? Nah, I'd rather like just be a consultant. And they're like, no, fuck you. <laughs> fuck you. Like, I don't need you because he didn't. Well, and moreover, pay me. <laughs> Good for you, and they man. weren't going to pay him. <laughs> they didn't want to pay him. I'm like, fuck you. No. And then two years later, he made private parts and blew himself up nationwide. So, well, no, he was going to do that no matter what. Oh, of course. <laughs> Like that was always in the cards. I got no problem with Howard Stern. I mean, I don't, I don't love his persona, but you know, he is who he is. Uh, you know what you what you see is exactly what you're gonna get. So, so uh, tell us how long have you and Senator Payton been having this uh, <laughs> this sleazy affair? Oh, this is great. Hmm? This is great. Okay. <laughs> 
is disgusting. I am so tired of the public thinking that they have got a right to invade a person's private life, okay? Oh, please, come on. You had sex with a United States senator in the parking lot of SeaWorld. You're telling me you're a private kind of person? No. You're our spotlight celebrity. We want to hear about the back seats of limos, sweetheart, about the ruined lives of people we want to be. New and exotic uses for champagne corks. Listen, I have been humiliated enough already, okay? <laughs> no, no, perhaps not. We need those details. You're a pig, Jack. Oh, oh, woman, oh, woman, don't you treat me so mean. You're the meanest old woman Who could have been better? Hmm. James Cameron. No. He was approached to do this, but he was too deep into Terminator 2. As he should have been. So he absolutely could not commit. His vision would have been a straightforward caper. Okay. I don't know if that's better, but okay. Again, I think you missed the romance part of it. Because again, to me, that's, that's what makes the movie beautiful. The, mo- mm-hmm. the romance moments, the connections between the people, especially the, the Lydia and Perry story to me is just so good. <laughs> yeah. That, that whole part of it is just beautifully done all right well now let's talk about our cast Hmm. and we start with jeff bridges as jack you know what's funny here i'm pretty sure we haven't done jeff bridges before i don't think that we have either i know before this he did tv and other random things the last picture show fat city bad company lolly madonna triple x the iceman cometh thunderbolt and lightfoot rancho deluxe stay hungry king kong from 1977 heaven's gate cutter's way tron the last unicorn against all odds starman jagged edge tucker the man in his dream and the fabulous baker boys after this he was in fearless blown away wild bill white squall the mirror has two faces the Big Lebowski, Arlington Road, The Muse, The Contender, K-Pax, Masks and Anonymous, Sea Biscuit, The Door and the Floor, Stick It, Surf's Up, Iron Man, The Men Who Stare at Goats, Crazy Heart, Tron Legacy, True Grit, R.I.P.D., The Giver, Hell or High Water, The Only Living Boy in New York, Kingsman, The Golden Circle, Bad Times at the El Royale, and The Old Man on Television. Forgot he was in Stick It. I love that movie. What do we think of Jeff Bridges in this movie? Oh, he's he's great. And he's so young. It's so bizarre to see him in this. He, I mean, he's great. He does the, the shock jock thing very well. The shock jock thing. And then the beautiful, like, all the face acting stuff that he's so good at. Mm-hmm. Well, he he is so good at reacting to Robin Williams. Mm-hmm. And it's also great because Robin Williams acts kind of insane. And Jeff Bridges just, like is very much an audience member here. Like, what am I seeing? What is this? But also like, I need this man to be okay. I need this man to be all right, because then my life can be all right. And you can just see that in his performance. I love it. Okay. All right. For sake of argument, let's say I do do this. Okay. If I do this, I want you to know it wouldn't be because I felt I had to because I felt cursed or guilty or responsible or anything. If I do this, if I do this, it's because I want to do this for you. That's all. For you.
don't go anywhere. The acting's just beautiful in this movie. Mm-hmm. I mean, it really, that, I think that's another thing that just struck me with it because at the time, like acting was the big draw for me in films. Mm-hmm. And, you know, again, romantic teenager vibes watching him and just being like, he, he he's doing the perfect foil opposite to Robin in this movie. And then as it goes along, he's just like, I don't believe any fucking thing he's saying, but I've got to do this because he needs to heal. <laughs> yeah. Like I need to make him better. And he can't, he can't get past it. He still can't get past it. Yeah. Who could have been better? Hmm. Kevin Klein. Yeah, I could see that. I feel like you'd have two clashing vibes with him and Robin, though. I mean, don't get me wrong. Kevin could be muted if he needed to be. Kevin can totally ramp it up. Absolutely. He can be that clown. Yeah. But if his role is to be the straight man, he's the straight man. I mean, yes. On the other hand... Ah, Jeff Bridges just fits like a glove. You know what I mean? Oh, Jeff Bridges is great. Like, I'm, yeah. I'm not mad. I feel like it's one of those, I totally understand and Kevin Klein can do everything, but Jeff mm-hmm. Bridges is just the perfect natural choice for this role. Yeah. Now we have to talk about Mr. Robin Williams as Perry. This is his second appearance in our Oscar series. Mm-hmm. After talking about his wonderful performance in The World According to Garp. Okay. What do we think of Robin in this movie? Robin's amazing. He's fucking Robin. He is. This is like the genie, but foul-mouthed. Mm-hmm. This role. And then also beautiful and sweet and tender at just the right moments. He's, I mean, yeah. that whole scene walking home with Lydia is just beautiful. It is. It's a beautiful scene. Night. Night. Okay. Excuse me. Wait. Just. Hey. Sorry. Wait one minute. Hey, excuse me. Please, wait. Wait. No, listen, I'm not feeling very well. Oh, no wonder. We just met, made love, and broke up, all in the space of 30 seconds. And I don't remember having the first kiss, which I think is the best part. Listen, it was so very special to meet you. And it was and for I me, too. But I think it's time you should shut up now. I... Shut up. Please. I'm not coming up to your apartment. That was never my intention. Oh, God, you don't want to. Oh, no, I want to. I have a hard-on for you the size of Florida. But I don't want just one night. I have a confession I have to make to you. You're married? No. You're divorced? No. You, You have a disease? No, please stop. I'm in love with you. (laughs) <laughs> just perfect and it's not just him it's it's amanda Plummer as well who did mm-hmm. not make my main list but he he's he's again completely out of his mind and he mm-hmm. knows it mm. but he's been through hell so yeah. why not hide it's so sweet and like <laughs> there's it's such like there's an element or like in today's world it feels such creeper vibes even there it's like creeper like he's been stalking her essentially but yes. it's with such innocence and earnestness like it it there's still creeper vibes but that is how it's presented it's like this is supposed to be an innocent like it's just so sweet if they did a better job of playing up the the medieval side of it the knight Mm -hmm. side of it where he is chivalrous yeah and that is the reason he is doing this is that he will not make a move on this woman because he respects her too much to do that Mm -hmm. he's just infatuated and in love and then that is contrasted with the fact that he's being a fucking creeper because in today's society, that's not how you do shit. Mm-hmm. 
they just didn't they didn't explain that very well so it plays off weird yeah you know between that and then i mean watching him react in true reality to like that him running through the street and being chased by the red knight and mm-hmm. finally flashing back and remembering everything and just watching him like not so much the flashbacks but his reaction in the moment to watch him drop all of the persona and the humor and the charisma that he's gained to fight this mm-hmm. and then lose to the red knight mm-hmm. and just completely go back to his cat- catatonia is amazing <laughs> it's yeah. so good his dedication to his role is as strong as ever in this movie when jack visits perry in the hospital to say he will retrieve the holy grail he doesn't just not blink in the scene at one point a fly landed on his foot and crawled across it and williams makes no reaction damn like somebody caught that frame and it's just like that's how much he's doing in this movie wow that's incredible yeah i wouldn't have made it <laughs> and to be to to make it really interesting like just before this he did the movie awakenings where he played oliver the oliver sacks character mhm and in that movie it's all about these individuals with a a disease that caused a catatonic state. Mm-hmm. And so he'd, he'd obviously studied all of that beforehand. He had a little bit of practice. A little bit. Of course, Robert De Niro is the main patient in that movie. So Interesting. And finally, for our main cast, we have Mercedes Rule playing Anne. Mm-hmm. Before this, she was in The Warriors, Heartburn, Radio Days, 84 Charing Cross Road, The Secret of My Success, Big, and Married to the Mob. After this, she was in Lost in Yonkers, Last Action Hero, a lot of smaller films and shorts, and Hustlers. Mm-hmm. What do oh. we think about Mercedes' rule in this movie? I love her in anything. She's phenomenal. Mm-hmm. Um, she's great here because she's just like, she's, she's so tough. Because she has to be. But then she can also be really soft and sweet. But I, it's always with that, like, don't fuck with me. I love it. She's tough because she has to hold all the, all the shit together. Yeah. But she just wants love. <laughs> yeah, she just wants, she wants, like, a nice person to share it with. She is the moonlighting share in this movie. Mm-hmm. Oh, sure. That's definitely the vibe they're going for. I just want to have you here. I love you. I don't give a shit about your baggage and your fame mm-hmm. and any of your other stuff. I love you. <laughs> Get over yourself. Yeah. And again, she wants this man to finally heal and be happy so much that she puts up with this crazy fucking scheme. <laughs> mm-hmm. And and then they go to the restaurant and she's absolutely in love and charmed by it. Mm-hmm. But her high point is the fight right before the the little final act break yeah all right let, let me let me just ask you one thing you love me i don't know <laughs> you can't even give me that can you jesus jack what were you planning on doing here? Were you planning on just packing up your things, walking out the door and dropping me a note when you meet I somebody new? I have no new? idea what I was planning to do. I just said I need time. Bullshit! If you're gonna hurt me, hurt me now! Not some long, drawn-out hurt that takes months of my life because you don't have the balls! Okay, I'll pack my stuff tonight. Um, what have you been doing here? Could you just tell me that? What have you been doing here? 
Hey, we both got something out of it, okay? What did I get? What did I get? What did I get? I couldn't have gotten from anybody with no name any night of the week. Do you think your company is such a treat? Your moods, your pain, your problems. Do you think this has been entertaining for me? And what do you want to stay with me for? That fight scene where she finally lets him have it is just so good. It's the most exhausted relationship fight scene I've ever watched. Mm-hmm. Where she's just like, oh my God, you're never going to get it, are you? Mm-hmm. She's just so tired with him. Mm-hmm. Uh, and I wouldn't be mad if she didn't take him back, but she loves him. So it is what it is. Mm. During college, Mercedes Rule wrote a thesis about T.S. Eliot's The Wasteland, in which the Fisher King is a prominent figure. Oh, interesting. So upon receiving the script, she knew the project was right for her based solely on the title. That's cool. Who could have been better? Ellen Barkin. Ooh, interesting. She has a very similar vibe. Yeah. Like, but come ballsy. on. No, I'm, I'm, I'm not going to trade her. All right, let's talk about some Arpons. Friend of people of note. David Hyde Pierce as Lou Rosen. <laughs> so this is tight. before Frasier. Mm. Him being the agent is quite funny. Oh, yeah. He's so uptight. He's the anti-slime agent mm-hmm. <laughs> because Jack's already kind of slimy. Sure. So his agent should be all business. Mm-hmm. Ted Ross as the limo bum. He was the lion in The Wiz and Captain Reed in Police Academy. Oh, okay. Laura Harris as Sandra. She was the obsession girl in Friends, the one where underdog gets away. Mm-hmm. Kathy Najimy as a crazed video customer. Hocus Pocus, sister act. Oh, what a fun comedy cameo for her. Mm-hmm. And Jeff Bridges' line to her is outstanding. I just love how she's like at first like, I'm supposed to be offended, but now I'm also interested. <laughs> love it. That's Terry Gilliam bit. Harry Shearer as sitcom actor Ben Starr mm-hmm. was on SNL for a while. Spinal Tap, he is one of Christopher Guest's go-to guys. Oh, yes. Melinda Kulea as the sitcom wife. She was the mom on Brotherly Love with the Lawrence Brothers. Mm. Jace Bartok as the first punk. He played Pony in Suburbia, the version you know and love. Yep. Dan Futterman as second punk. He was the executive producer of Capote in Treatment and the Looming Tower. Mm-hmm. Amanda Plummer as Lydia, the daughter of Christopher Plummer, Honey Bunny in Pulp Fiction. She had a short role in World According to Garp. She's an outstanding actress. She's very, very good in this movie. Mm-hmm. I should have put her in the main roles, to be perfectly honest here. But yes, but she's oh, she's so fucking good. Mm-hmm. Michael Jeter as the homeless cabaret singer. It's Mr. Noodle's brother, Mr. Noodle. Yep. And the boys next door. He passed away too soon. God, what a great actor. And he's so good in this movie. He's so good. And it's so heartbreaking when Jack just pretends not to know him. It is. Oh. Oh, that hurt. And a, and a, and a really important commentary at the time of like the AIDS crisis being a thing. Mm-hmm. Just just his one line of <clears throat> when you were... Did you lose your mind all of a sudden, or was it a slow, gradual process? Well, I'm a singer by trade, 
summer stock nightclub reviews, that sort of thing. And God, I absolutely lived for it. I can do gypsy. Every part. I can do it backwards. <laughs> but then one night, right in the middle of singing, funny, suddenly it hit me. What does all this mean? I mean, that plus the fact that I'd watched all my friends die. Sound like a veteran, don't I? <laughs> my dad would be so proud of me. Hey. And you're like, oh, man. Yeah. But then he's just beautifully funny because he's the perfect clown. <laughs> Mm-hmm. As a street jacket yuppie, Richard Legravenese and writer. Mm-hmm. A writer shows up in the movie. Yeah. Christian Clemenson as Edwin. He played the doctor in Apollo 13. Edwin, of course, the gentleman who goes to the club and shoots it up. Mm-hmm. Carlos Carrasco as the doctor. He played Ortiz, the big burly bus rider in Speed. Mm-hmm. John DeLancey as a TV executive. It's Discord, everybody. Yeah. <laughs> Kevin Fennessy as a diner. He went on to work in extras and locations casting in movies. Oh, okay. And finally, as a disabled veteran with a cameo, Tom motherfucking Waits. Yeah. Perfect choice for that specific role. Mm-hmm. Like, of course, get Tom Waits as a stunt cast cameo as a homeless person. Sure. But to make him the disabled vet, mm-hmm. commenting on that part of, of you know, homelessness, that's smart. Yeah. <laughs> that's when you take a stunt casting to the right level. <laughs> mm-hmm. I got to appreciate it. All right. Let's talk about awards. Awards. This movie was nominated for five Academy Awards. Okay. Best art set decoration. Mm, okay. I would have gone costume design just for the, uh, the Red Knight alone, you mm-hmm. know? No, we could have gone for that. But hey, whatever. Best original score. Hmm. That's not bad. Best original screenplay. Yeah. I'll allow it. It's a really really fun story. Yeah. Best supporting actress for Mercedes Rule. Yeah. And best actor for Robin Williams. Wow. I really like that they put him in actor. He and Jeff Bridges are are Mm co-leads. It's about their stories. No, I, I don't disagree. All right, let's move on to some trivia. Trivia. The Red Knight costume was fashioned from latex over leather and urethane. Mm-hmm. The helmet was cast in aluminum and fireproofed so that they could light fire around it. Okay. <laughs> There's a whole saga with this thing. Like, seriously. Mm-hmm. It weighed 125 to 150 pounds and was entirely self-contained, with padding to protect stuntman Chris Howell in the event of a fall and ice packs to keep him cool while the fire was around him. Oh, okay. The fire and smoke effects from the costume were controlled via buttons on the knight's lance. Mm. So he could press the buttons and cause different tanks to go up. Propane tanks fueling the helmet's fire burst were hidden in the horse's saddle, with oxygen tanks for a breathing apparatus hidden in the helmet with a two-way radio. Okay. Incredible shit. Yeah. I gotta say, that costume design is amazing. Mm-hmm. Initially, costume designer Beatrix Aruna Pastor wanted to use found objects like car parts and industrial waste for the costume, Mm. which would have been really smart and beautiful. Oh, yeah. But Gilliam didn't think they can make it look authentically medieval while achieving the the blood splatter effect. Mm -hmm. So he made a choice, and I get that. 
The concept was instead to have the knight be burning from the inside out with smokes and coming from his joints and flame from his helmet, just like the the fire and the pain coming from Perry's own mind. Mm. Two circus horses, Lightning and Goliath, served as the Red Knight's mount. One was able to gallop and the other was able to rear. Mm-hmm. The Grand Central Station waltz was an idea conjured by Terry Gilliam on the day they were about to shoot a small scripted scene in Grand Central. Jeez, of course. This is, again, the man doesn't plan these things, mm-hmm. which works fine when it's his script. To quote Terry, the script had a scene in Grand Central Station where Jack is in kind of a mood and he hears this poor black woman singing a beautiful song and he stops in the rush of his life and assesses his situation. Well, that was fine and we were in Grand Central Station wrecking it and I looked down from the raised area and I said, wouldn't it be nice if in the middle of this rush hour, because people were just running past each other, if as they passed somebody, they glanced to their left or their right, fell in love and started waltzing? I thought, what a sweet idea that would be. And that's the sequence that ended up in the final movie, unquote. My dude, consistency. Like, I get it. But you had to do that multiple times and they didn't. Well, that in and of itself is a beautiful shot. Mm-hmm. But does it fit the movie? <laughs> yeah. Come on. To get that, though, they had, to, they had to shut down the main hall of Grand Central from 8 p.m. to the arrival of the commuter trains at 5.30 the next morning. Mm-hmm. And then they had to use lighting outside the terminal windows to make it look like 5 p.m., with 400 extras waltzing around the mirror ball topped information booth throughout the night. Oh. To this day, though, on New Year's, an orchestra plays at the terminal and people waltz at Grand Central Station mm-hmm. because of that scene. That's cool. That's a nice little legacy. And finally, besides his connection to the legend of the Fisher King, the Red Knight combines the fire from the murder shotgun and the blood and gore from Perry's wife being shot. Both are so traumatic that his subconscious converts them into the image of the Red Knight. Mm-hmm. And that leads us to ratings. Ratings. For every film, we have a specific rating system. For this one, it must be Holy Grails. Yes, it must. It, sh- it needs to be the Holy Grails. Mm-hmm. This is my movie. We talked about it. It's messy. I'm going to go three and a half. I still really love the core elements of this movie. Mm-hmm. It, you know, this used to be like a five star movie for me and just yeah. reminiscing about the impact it made for me. Looking back on it, it's just. It's just a mess, and that, and it's because our our director didn't think to spend the time to unify his vision. He okay. didn't do that work, and especially because he's used to working on the fly with his own story ideas. I'm gonna be a little bit nicer, and I'm gonna go with a four. Oh wow! Okay, because I thought about that too. I, I mean, think I think the story is really good. Yeah, it's got a good beginning, middle, end. Great, cool. Uh, performances are phenomenal, but it's the direction that ruined didn't ruin the movie but like kept it from being a solid yes for me yeah but like what's there is still so good and enjoyable it's just like it just wanders too much and that's that's terry that's i'm gonna upgrade myself to a four then because i still really love it (laughs) because we can't have different scores (laughs) no we can have different scores but i also really love this movie and and I, I, I think my gut reaction was four, but then I was like, well, maybe I'll talk myself down. It's like, no, nah, I, I need to go with my gut here. Whatever. It's a four for me. It's a really good movie. <laughs> like, this is a movie that I would tell everyone. I was like, okay, it's not as great as I used to think it was, but it's sneakily one of those great movies that not that many people know about. Mm-hmm. And it's one that's like, go watch it. You'll enjoy it. You really will. All right. Well, now that we're finished with that, Diana, it's time to watch a remake. A remake, okay. But a remake unlike any other. 
Oh. Because for this remake, they got Marty Scorsese. Interesting. He's been on this show like 12 times. I know. We've watched a lot of his movies. That's because he's a great director. We are going to watch his remake of Cape Fear. Okay, well, I've never seen the original, so... I've never seen the original either, and I would love to. I don't feel like we've got enough time this cycle around. We might come back to it, though, if we okay. really like this. Cool. Ah, uh, big warning on this one. This deals with... this. I, I, what I do know is this movie deals with some rough subject matter. Oh, okay. But I'm really excited to watch Bobby De Niro go full balls to the wall. Mm-hmm. That's what I've heard about this one. So uh, I'm intrigued. I'm intrigued with especially Martin Scorsese remaking a Hollywood classic. Mm-hmm. That's like Gus Van Zandt's Psycho. Like, is it going to be an experiment or is it going to be its own fun, interesting movie? Mm. I don't know. We're going to have to find out. All right. But before we go. We have a new movie to talk about. New movies. We saw M3 Gun or Megan. A robotics engineer at a toy company builds a lifelike doll that begins to take on a life of its own. I need to state how much when the first trailer for this movie came out, David was like, fuck this movie. I will never see it. This is garbage. No, no, no. He was so against this. And I was like, fine, I don't care. I want to see it. And then it started getting all these great reviews. And he's like, okay, maybe it'll be all right. It was so influenced by Rotten Tomato scores and critics. I was wrong. This is an instant cult classic. Mm-hmm. Holy shit. Like, if you like Chucky, which we definitely did, the Child's Play film, you can't not enjoy this. It got me, it got me a few times with a couple jump scares. Great. It was enjoyable. Like, I knew where it was going. I didn't care. It was a great time. This is what the new Chucky wished it was. Sure. Because that movie got too full of itself. Yeah. My God. There are moments in this movie where they legitimately and somewhat thoughtfully tried to like raise the emotional stakes. And then every time it got to the point where it was about to take itself itself too seriously, my God, it undercut itself so deeply. (laughs) Mm -hmm. It's so fucking funny. It is very fun. I mean, they nailed it with having a movie that was self-aware but not in a way that was eye-rolling like mm-hmm. it's self-aware enough to make the jokes that it needs to to be like yeah we're a dumb horror movie we know that we're not we're not kidding ourselves about what we're making here mm-hmm. like is it perfect no does it ham it up a little too much sometimes absolutely is it still so fucking fun and i can't wait for the sequels definitely mm-hmm. um you know, and and the other fun thing is, so much has been made about the that originally the concept was much gorier. You know, this was a deeply R-rated horror movie, and then the response was so huge to the character design that they went, "Hold on, we could get teenagers," <laughs> and so they pulled it back in. And honestly, I think it's a better movie for it. Mm-hmm. And that's not spoiling anything. I'm just like, I think it's a better movie because it kind of pulled back a little bit. It makes it more entertaining in that way. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, sometimes the creative restrictions help a little. <laughs> but um, also, I would watch an unrated version because this movie is so ridiculous. <laughs> I just, I, yeah, I was wrong. I was wrong. The marketing campaign didn't grab me, but guy, by God, the movie did. Mm-hmm. Go see it. It's so fun. <laughs> it's fun. All right. Well, until next time, have a good movie.
Thanks for listening. Be sure to review and rate us on iTunes, Stitcher, or wherever you listen to your podcast. For questions, comments, and recommendations, you can email us at macintoshandmod at gmail.com or find us on Twitter, Instagram, and Facebook.